You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm Will Sherwin, and on this episode, I interviewed Jeffrey Jamerson, Vice President of Programs and Services at Aviva Family and Children's Services in the Los Angeles area, and PhD candidate in Transformative Studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies. We discuss the influence of hip-hop and his development of expressive remix therapy, how he got involved with narrative therapy, his work in the foster care system, and larger efforts in the United States to train youth in digital media to develop pathways out of poverty. Enjoy. Well, when I was interviewing Shoshana Simons, uh, she said that you were doing some really interesting work around narrative and expressive arts therapy um, and remix therapy using technology to help youth you know, change the stories of their lives. So I wanted to hear just more about that and kind of the history of how it developed and what you were seeing in your work that got you interested in it. Sure, great question. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background. I, uh, I come from, born and raised in Pasadena, California, about 15 minutes north of downtown LA. And um, let's see, in the 80s, I became a, a break dancer and used to pop and break dance. <laughs> and uh, was also a DJ for many years. And it, I would say those two art forms helped shape me. So I came from a neighborhood where most of the kids engaged in sports, you know, basketball and, and, and football. <clears throat> and I was a moderately good athlete, but I was, a, a, I was very passionate about arts. And so the great thing about hip hop, early hip hop culture was it was so creative and it allowed me an opportunity <clears throat> to express myself and it just kind of changed the trajectory of my life. So that's kind of like the, the first little part, you know, just kind of engaging in hip, early hip hop culture through DJing, break dancing, and, and pop locking. Fast forward a few years later, uh, once I began to embark on my paraprofessional career, uh, I started out as a group home manager for a six bed group home in Altadena. And at that point in time, I was probably in my mid to late 20s. I was the house manager for six adolescent boys that lived in a group home. And I would basically, and they were all uh, foster kids. So they were wards of the court and they were removed from their families because of uh, abuse and neglect. Uh, I was their caretaker. So I would cook for them, cook breakfast and cook dinner and take them to school. And if they had trouble troubles at school, I would go talk to the counselors or the the principal or the teachers. I'd have to uh, talk to their social workers or their probation officers. And what I discovered was one of the ways to make a connection with, with the youth was to reach and use things that I was passionate about. And so I reached back and began to hang out with the kids, tell them stories about my, my DJing days and my breakdancing days. And from from there, I always 
you know, I kind of told myself, man, if I ever kind of ascend the ladder of mental health and child welfare and become a therapist, I think it would be great to have a model of therapy that revolves around street art. That kind of became the beginning of remix therapy. And in, in in I'm back like in the uh, early to mid 90s. So now I'm going to fast forward. <clears throat> I, I stayed at that six bed group home for about a year and a half, almost two years. Then I transitioned to a much, much bigger child welfare agency called Five Acres, which is in Altadena, Pasadena area. And they were at that time probably a $20, 25000000 million agency. They serviced uh, over five or 6,000 girls and boys and families throughout L.A. County. And I started out in their residential facility where they had an 80-bed group home. So I went from a six-bed group home to working in an 80-bed group home. Obviously, I didn't work with all 80 kids. I just worked with uh, 10 kids in one cottage. And they were uh, all boys, but a little younger than the population I had served before. And I did that work for almost six years, then decided to go back to school, uh, finished up my bachelor's, and then got my master's degree uh, in counseling psychology. During that phase in my career, we had to answer the question, you know, what would we change about service delivery? And I remember telling my team, like, hey, you know, this is my background. This is what I would like to do. And I kind of gave them the pitch and the story of using uh, street art. We did the pitch to the class and the teacher loved it. And that was that. Now about CIIS. So <clears throat> I'm currently a PhD student at CIIS. And I'm on the tail end. I've been on the tail end for a couple years now. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm finishing my dissertation. Um, so what attracted, to, what attracted me to CIIS was the fact that it was a transdisciplinarity program, which means it kind of cut across disciplines. They also had this uh, lens that they used called creative inquiry, which was a way for uh, researchers to embed themselves in their own research and basically uh, what that means is in a, in a lot of PhD programs or research programs they kind of want the researcher to be removed from the research you know like on the outside looking in but at, at CIIS at least in the transformative studies department of CIIS they because they have this creative inquiry lens they were encouraging us uh, students, mm. hey, you could embed yourself within the research and you could pick a, a research methodology which mm. allows you to be a part of the research with your participants. And so that was somewhat intriguing to me. And within the first year that I was in the program, I basically came up with uh, remix therapy. And mm -hmm. so basically remix therapy is a mashup of uh, three different disciplines. It is uh, narrative therapy, expressive arts therapy, and digital media art. And so we take the, we use the word, I use the word remix as a metaphor for change. It's almost like the perfect metaphor in my opinion. It's very similar to uh, reframe <laughs> or restory or reauthor. And if you're familiar with narrative therapy, you know, they use those words, especially reauthoring. I look at, you know, because I had a music background and DJing, 
I kind of knew the history of DJing, at least in from the, a hip hop perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. I always told the story of DJ Kool Herc, who is pr pretty much credited with being the first uh, hip hop DJ. And he created a whole style that we hear today all throughout the world and all different genres of music. And it's cutting and breaking mm -hmm. and scratching, using two turntables, almost like an instrument. Basically, this guy, you know, he had a Jamaican background. He was he was uh, reared in the South Bronx, New York, which at that time in the late 60s and early 70s looked like a, a war zone. But he was able to uh, be super creative, look down at a spinning turntable and say, how can I make the groove? How can I make this song dynamic? How can I make this song plastic <laughs> no pun intended right how can i make a change you know when you for for those of us who remember vinyl records a vinyl record is what it is it's pretty much set in stone you put a needle on it and it plays and it is what it is you can't change it but dj cool hurt dreamed differently and he said hey well if i had another turntable and what if i use this mixer and what if i blend it all of a sudden you have a song that becomes dynamic and next thing you know you have something called a remix and to me that became the metaphor for what could be done in a therapeutic context so why couldn't we remix our thoughts why couldn't we remix our dreams why couldn't we remix our stories and the answer is, yeah, we could. So then, you know, once I started playing around with those concepts, you know, I realized, oh, well, there's already a modality out there that's doing this. And it was narrative therapy. So I started diving into narrative therapy, looking at how therapists were using narrative therapy. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. So it's, it's here, you know, you could externalize in narrative therapy. They say, oh, you have um, some type of cognitive problem. Um, and what they would say is, well, first of all, we're going to divide and separate the person from the problem. You know, the person is not the problem. The problem's the problem. And once you do that, now you can externalize the problem, put it on a table, and you can reauthor it. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> so, so then it was like, okay, <clears throat> if we externalize, and, and I don't just relegated to problems, but just stories in general, right? Uh, narratives in general. If you just externalize your story and then remix it using digital media, what would that feel like and what would that look like? And that's where it kind of opened up for me. So then I said, okay, uh, what if we used compu laptop computers and then I got an iPad and started playing around with different apps. And it was all about uh, creating stories or bits of stories and then remixing those stories and you could do it uh, in a number of different ways I I did a few pilot groups at Five Acres uh, while I was there a few years ago and then about a year and a half ago I, I got promoted and hired at another agency called Aviva Family and Children's Services in Hollywood <laughs> and yeah. I've been there for a year and a half uh, I am the VP of all programs and services. They're, they're a $20 million agency, and we serve over 6,000 children and families throughout L.A. County. And so right now, Will, I'm right. <laughs> it took me about a year and a half mm -hmm. to learn, like, the programs and the staffing, you know, the contracts mm -hmm. and the county partners. Right now, 
um, at a point, I, and I, I report directly to the CEO and the president. She, uh, her name is Regina Betty. She's an awesome lady. And she's pretty much given me an open slate to unfold not just remix therapy, but uh, the whole concept of using digital media, art, digital media, learning with foster youth. So we're in the we're in the process of building a digital media lab, which will be will have uh, iPads and um, MacBooks and GoPro cameras, and yeah, we're just going to create stories and teach the kids how to tell stories and and be open to remixing their stories. Wow, that's exciting! Thank you. There's a lot of things I'd like to ask about and hear more about. One thing that comes to mind, do you know Travis Heath? No, I'm going to write that down. He's a psychologist who's written a a paper um, about his work using hip-hop in narrative therapy. Oh, okay. And he practices in Los Angeles and Denver. Oh, sweet. So in my uh, area. Yeah. So if I could just read you a little bit from this paper, I think is kind of relevant. Sure. Quote, over the last decade, I, Travis, have worked with hundreds of marginalized young people in Los Angeles and Denver in the United States. Most of these young people have been involved in street gangs where threats of violence are a constant companion. I first encountered such work a decade ago. It became readily apparent that traditional ways of working were being adopted by practitioners assisting these young people. While the intentions were often pure, the work was largely unsuccessful and culturally distant. This left many of my colleagues feeling hopeless and uttering sentiments such as, these kids aren't good candidates for therapy, unquote. I thought about that because if the approaches that are being offered to some of these youth, if they're not interested and they're not attracted to talk therapy or case management or 50 minutes with a private um, conversation with a person they don't really know, if they're not attracted to that, then sometimes the kids get the problem gets located inside the youth as they're not good candidates for therapy. Right. Rather than let's look at the forms that we're offering, this kind of services we're offering. And did you find that when you were originally working in the group homes that some approaches of therapy or case management were not so attractive? So, Will, like as you're reading that quote, I'm like, did I write that? <laughs> I swear it's like I have, I have a very similar, I've had a very similar experience and when this interview's over, I'm going to send you an article. I got published in a, a national nursing journal a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago. And I'm going to send that to you. I think I have a quote in that or a section of that uh, article that's very similar to Mr. Heath. Absolutely. That, mm-hmm. that was my experience. That's kind of what spawned me to go from a paraprofessional to a professional level because I wasn't a therapist. I was a little lower on the totem pole. I was considered, it's called a residential counselor or a childcare worker. And in that position, I was with the kids on a daily, multiple hours a day. And then in comes this therapist, right? And they're professionally trained and they would take the kids out and do whatever they did in, you know, in their space. And then the kids would come back and I would hear them. They would, they would complain. They would say, you know, I'm not getting anything out of therapy. I wish it was different. Or many times they wouldn't open up and, and talk at all. And so I would hear it on the other side from the therapist's point of view, very similar to what Mr. Heath said, oh, this kid's not open to therapy or it's, you know. So for me, it was like, hmm, I think 
therapy is really about engagement. The first step they teach you in school is it's a therapeutic alliance. You get that, I believe you get that alliance through, you know, just connecting with a kid where they are. And with most, most kids, it's going to be through creative, playful type of engagement. It's, it's, and, and I know we're talking about narrative. <laughs> it's not really through talk in, in some ways. It's about playing and kind of engaging. And then when you're talking about inner city kids or kids who come from impoverished conditions, I think it, that might even be a bit more amplified because you can't just expect mm -hmm. a kid to come into a room who has gone through some kind of adverse trauma and just start to talk about it. You know, it's like, no, how do I, how do I create this alliance? You're really going to create the alliance through connecting with them in some form of play or creativity. And, and that's where, you know, if you're using music or if you're using video, like you'll get all the stories will come out, the narratives will come out, but you got to engage them that way. And I, I don't know if, um, unless they're a specialized trained therapist in expressive arts or creative arts, some of our regular therapists, you know, they're just using the models that are uh, being handed to them. Yeah. Tomas Alvarez from Beats, Rhymes, and Life, who we've talked about up in Oakland. Yeah. He said you know, he found the same kind of challenge with engagement, how to engage these young men and especially young men of color. He said... Um, one of his ideas of starting to use hip hop therapy was looking at what the young people are already doing to help themselves and seeing ways to join in with that. Absolutely. Here's an excerpt from an interview he did on Piers TV. This is Thomas Alvarez of Beats, Rhymes, and Life. In 2004, I was interning as a clinical social worker at the Berkeley High School Health Center, which at the time was uh, providing uh, comprehensive health services which included mental health and so being one of the few clinicians of color um, they thought naturally to try to pair me with some of the young men of color that they had been having a difficult time engaging at the school and one of the um, first things that I noticed <coughs> was that um, the a lot of the young men of color that clearly demonstrated a need for support um, were not attracted to the services that were being offered to them. So the traditional services of case management and of therapy, um, that was something that they uh, didn't feel comfortable um, um, signing up for. And so it became very challenging to do this outreach and to engage uh, this demographic of youth. And, and I had an idea to uh, develop and pilot a, a RAP therapy program, um, a, a therapeutic group that met after school that really looked to hip hop culture for inspiration and focusing specifically on uh, um, the art of rhyming and freestyling and writing raps. And so I pitched it to my supervisor at the time and had a lot of support from her. And uh, we ran a 10-week pilot. And, um, and really the idea was to, you know, for me, it, it was what are young people already doing uh, to help themselves? What are their natural outlets? What are um, what we call their natural system of coping? And uh, it was clear you could go out in the hallway and see these young men um, freestyling with their friends, um, you know, clearly identifying with hip hop, listening to hip hop, being influenced by hip hop on a daily basis. So to me, it was a no brainer. It was, you know, meeting them, trying to meet them where they were at, which mm -hmm. was hip hop, creating a space for them to develop as not just artists, but as young men. And we had a uh, tremendous success uh, that first year and, and really um, 
were inspired uh, to really see, well, what, what is it about this group? What is it about rap therapy um, that can be uh, useful in, in, in partnering with and engaging with uh, diverse youth populations? So Mr. Alvarez developed these innovative approaches because of the challenges of uh, engagement. When you started first experimenting with, with some of this, using street art and um, some of the, the digital media, like what were those first kind of experiments like? Yeah, so I still, I remember my first cohort of hard to reach teen youth in the Pasadena, Altadena area. They were part of a program called the First Offender Program. And that's a program that the Pasadena Mental Health Center had a collaborative with the Pasadena Police Department. So you had some kids in that area who were cited. They were first time citations for like shoplifting or doing some kind of, and I'm going to say like a minor crime. And rather than the judge putting them in juvenile hall because it was their first offense, they were to do some community service and then go through kind of a counseling program. So I was a trainee at the time. I was working at Pasadena Mental Health, so I'm still in, in, in therapy school. They said, hey, do you want to work the first offender program? I'm like, I do. So they said, can you design a way to kind of reach these kids and work with them? And so my first kid, I, I used a computer. He wanted to be a basketball player. We did basic research on positions in basketball, you know, how much the positions make. At, at a certain point, I had kind of an ulterior motive. And my ulterior motive was, hey, if do you realize that um, out of the million kids that try to play basketball, there's a very small percentage that make it. And so my question to you is, if you don't make it, what could you do? And he goes, oh, I never thought of that. I go, well, can we research that too? And he's like, yeah. So he goes, well, I don't know what to research. And I go, well, if you love basketball, maybe there's something that's connected to it that you still could do. So we mm -hmm. threw around some ideas and we got stuck on a sports agent. And he did some research on a sports agent and saw how much money they made. And that became kind of a backup plan for him. That was my first time bringing technology into a session. I saw how effective it was. By the way, this was a kid. They told me, you know, you're probably not going to be able to talk to him. He shuts down. He doesn't open up. But the computer kind of opened him up. Now, fast forward, I'm, I'm finished with school. I'm doing this group. And now I'm doing it with about a dozen a dozen kids. I had a dozen laptop computers. The kids come in and we just engaged in creating stories that come from their neighborhood. And we used animation, we used um, uh, cartooning, we used basic digital storytelling. That's what they did. I found out you bring computers into a group session. If I don't have help, <laughs> There's always Murphy's Law when it comes to technology. So I learned that within the first 20 minutes of my first group, which was whenever you're dealing with technology and kids, there will be uh, bumps in the road, there will be gaps, and stuff is going to go wrong. So if I could have an assistant or two, <laughs> that would really be helpful. You know, kids get stuck. And you give them an assignment or something to work on, and they're going to get stuck. Uh, then you have other kids. I would envision how to use an intervention or a technique. 
present it to the kids. And some kids would just, man, they would take that and then they would say, hey, Mr. Jamerson, check this out. And I would go back and they just took it to a whole nother level. How does it look uh, when you engage youth now? And what are the what are the digital projects like that you work with the youth now look like? Yeah. Okay. So um, I have really been on somewhat of a a hiatus, kind of like in suspended animation Mm -hmm. for the past year and a half just trying to get my feet under me. So, and it was, I almost didn't take this new job just because (laughs) when I was at Five Acres, everything was trending and rolling. Like I had this kind of green light to grow this, to grow remix therapy. I, I actually call it expressive remix now, just because what I discovered is when I call it remix therapy, it's kind of pigeonholed within the realm of counseling and therapy, excuse me. And I started getting opportunities to use it like in education and after school program. In those settings, it's not so much therapy as it is youth engagement, empowerment, uh, skill building. And so I go, okay, well, if I'm using it in a school setting or an after school setting, I'm not going to call it remix therapy. I'm going to call it expressive remix. So we called it the expressive remix group. So just depending on the setting, it's, you're, you, uh, we're really basically using the same principles, but uh, s- tweaked slightly, and the name is a little different. When I was at Five Acres, yeah, I'm unfolding this thing. I started using it in education. I, I was doing it in summer schools in Pasadena Unified School District. And I have some examples of how we used it there. And I, I think I have a little video I put together. And I'll send you a link online so you can see what that looked like. And so now I get this opportunity to become a vice president at another agency, the one I'm, I'm at now. And it was like, man, do I want to like this is a great opportunity for me for me in my career I'm going to make more money I'm going to have more responsibility I'm kind of moving up the ladder but I might potentially have to leave this behind so I made the move I I decided to come over to Aviva and like I said it's been a year and a half of a lot of a, a big learning curve but to my surprise and delight they are gung-ho and open to us using digital media. So we're just really at the very beginning stage of unfolding it at Aviva. I haven't really done it yet. I have, so we have over 260 staff. A lot of them are therapists. Within our residential program at Aviva, I have, I want to say eight or nine expressive arts therapists. They are ready. They're like, Jeff, when are you going to do the training? Like, we're so ready. Even the kids kind of know about it now too. I had I had two girls yesterday say, "Hey, Mr. Jamerson, we want to, you know, we want to make beats. Like we're ready to like make some beats." I'm like, "Next week I'm coming to the, the every week they have what's called a resident council meeting where they meet with the staff in the group home and talk about issues in the house and concerns and things that they want to shift and change." I go, "I am coming to that meeting next Tuesday." <laughs> And we're going to set a timetable to uh, get you guys some equipment so you can make your beats. So um, to make a long story short, I'm just in the phase right now where it's starting to unfold at Aviva. You know, I've taught two classes at CIIS to uh, MFT students. 
in the expressive arts department. So I, I've been working on it. <laughs> I just haven't been using it with clients or with kids. I work right now at a shelter for youth that are facing homelessness in Oakland. Okay. And I've also done some work in preschools in some inner city neighborhoods. And um, I'm really interested in multimedia. I've done some experiments on my own. Oh, cool. And I've been really inspired by the, the Life Saving Tips Project at Dulwich Center. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I re I've heard of the Dulwich Center. Um, yeah. They're part of narrative therapy. Are they from Australia? Yep. yep. Yeah, I remember uh, a few years ago when I was doing some of my research, I, I had a colleague or a, actually a peer who was a fellow student at CIIS. He turned me on to them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, they did this one project working with young Muslim Australians okay. called Life Saving Tips. Okay. And they interviewed them. The audio recorded interviews where they're asking about the special skills they'd like to pass on to other youth. Okay. And so they have these short videos that are just like one or two minutes. And they don't show the kids' faces. There's like slideshows and videotapes of um, silhouettes and things like that. Yeah. But they are sharing these special skills that they've developed. And um, that was really inspiring to me to see video and multimedia be used to, to draw out and thicken the kind of skills of people. And since Shoshana told me about what you were doing, it's kind of lived on in my imagination. I don't even know what expressive remix therapy was, but it's kind of, I've been imagining it for my work in the shelter, like ways we could in interview kids and audio record it and make slideshow videos and what would a remix look like? And so even though I don't know about it, it's still kind of been living in my imagination. Yeah, so I have a, a technique that I used, uh, I call it the animated mask. And so some of the reasons these ideas came up is because I work with foster youth who have a lot of anonymity because they're wards of the court and, you know, they've been removed from their caregivers because of abuse and neglect and all that bad stuff. You know, we can't show their faces and you can't, you know. And so then it was like, okay, because... So if we did a digital story, how do we uh, do it in a way where it's still powerful, their voice is being heard, but we don't see, we're not breaking confidentiality. So I found this app on uh, iTunes, the, app, the Apple App Store. It's a cool little app that lets you animate a picture. And so what I did was I go, huh, I think this would be cool if we... If I engage the kids in a mask making exercise, because I'm still, I still believe in tactile arts too. So even though I love digital media and love digital art, I still love the whole concept and idea of traditional arts too, you know, finger painting and collage work, you know, doing real art with your hands. And so it was like, cool. I mean, we could still do that, but then we could digitize it and we could blend it. So that's a whole part of remix also. So it's not just fully and totally being lost in the world of, you know, digital media, but we're using traditional art. You could take pictures of it, you could blend it, and then you could remix that, <laughs> so to say. So to make a long story short, we um, had the kids make these, make these masks and then animate the masks with this app. And it's pretty powerful. So I'll send you a link to that uh, also after we finish the interview so you can see it because, yeah. You've talked about 
youth that may, may come to you and be described as like, this person is not going to be able to be engaged. They're very resistant. You know, what kind of things have you seen when you're, when you are bringing in these, these art approaches, expressive remix therapy approaches, Do, are they able to reach youth that, that are, are labeled as resistant or, or not reachable? I think so. I think, and it's relative. Like, so I, you know, I don't think it's, you're going to reach every single youth. You know, I'm going to be honest. In some ways, it's not even the model or the approach. It's really about the human connection. So it's about people just taking the time to connect with people. And so if you have, you show me a really good therapist, I'm going to show you a person who knows how to connect with people. So you could give them any tools, whether it's art, talk therapy, play, and they're going to find a way to take those tools and use them effectively and efficiently with their clients. So it's, I, I will put that out there first. It's really about the people first. <laughs> but then with that all said and done, yeah, um, I think if, if we can enhance our tool bag, and use different forms of art, and why not use uh, new school forms of art, which comes through technology, that will actually make a big difference. Because today, you know, kids grow up in a technological world. I mean, they're texting, they're on computers, they're just the, the whole way that their brains are wired and their minds are wired is is through technology so why not use that therapeutically how does so it works for you're working with the youth for a while in the studio and they're are they um directly working with um you know like a story about themselves or their identity and then it's made into some form yeah like a dvd that they can take with them as they get older how does how does that work so and i'm going back to my former three groups that I did while I was at Five Acres. I, d I did three different pilot groups. My first group, I let the kids do a, a couple of different, what I call creative excursions or digital interventions. One of which was basic digital storytelling. And I'm sure since you're from the Bay, you're, you're familiar with the uh, Center for Digital Storytelling and the whole concept of telling a story digitally. I've heard of it, but I don't, I'm not that familiar with it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, the, I believe, I believe they're hit, they're headquartered mm -hmm. in Oakland. You know, one thing I didn't tell you <laughs> is at, there was a segment, almost a 10 year segment in my background where I had a videography company. <laughs> so I had a lot of background, uh, with cameras and editing and putting using multimedia and I made a quasi living doing it. It was kind of like a hobby, but I shot a lot of weddings and I did a couple of music videos and um, I learned, I took editing classes and learned how to edit. I, I cut on a system called Avid, A-V-I-D, which is ind industry standard in Hollywood. This is before Final Cut came out on Apple, but it was, that was the standard that all film editors used and I took classes at my local community college. <clears throat> I learned how to navigate all that. And me and my cousin started a little company and we would go around and, and film events and edit them and <clears throat> sell them to people. So it's kind of like a, a cool little a cool little hustle. Fast forward now, I'm working at Five Acres, I'm getting into digital storytelling and I find out about this, 
this group called the Center for Digital Storytelling and that they're using this concept digital stories with kids and, and youth in inner cities. And I'm like, oh, wow, that, that's really cool. So I took their course. They offered a course in Pasadena. Basically, you go in, you do what's called a story circle. So all the other people in the room, you get in a circle, you come up with an idea that you want to do your story on. They have a couple of rules. One rule is it has to be a personal story. It has to be about you. Um, and you write it out and then you tell the group and the group gives you feedback and it kind of blossoms. And then from there, you collect your assets, digital files, which could be voiceovers, music, video clips, still photography clips, and then you mash it together, you put it all together, and then there's a screening at the end of the workshop. And it was a pretty enlightening experience. So I, you know, I had a background in editing, I'm going through this process, I'm like, wow, this is really cool. At the end of it, I go, the only thing I would do different if I ran my workshop is I would open it up to participants being able to tell any kind of story. I wouldn't just relegate it to a personal story. Center for Digital Storytelling, they, they wanted it to be personal, which is, I respect that. That's cool. For me, coming from the background I come from, I know that mm. some kids aren't going to want to tell their personal story. They're going to want to tell their, their father's story or an uncle's story or their neighbor's story or a made-up story. Um, so I wanted it to open it up in that way. So in my first cohort, that's what I did. We did digital storytelling. I had the kids do the story circle. And the rule was you could tell any story you want. I just had a, it just has to be an appropriate story. <laughs> that, those were my rules. So I didn't want stories about, you know, gang violence or uh, stuff that was, was negative. And from there, yeah, the kids told their stories. I uh, showed them how to work basic software on uh, our HP computers, which we used uh, Photo Story 3, which is a basic software program. They collected all their assets, they collected their music, they put their own, I showed them how to write a script, they put all this together into uh, digital stories between one and three minutes long. And then at the end of the program, uh, the whole group, we had a screening and they show their stories. So that was the first cohort. The second cohort and the third cohort have made it a, a bit more purposeful because what I noticed in the first cohort is you had stories that <laughs> were all over the place. So in the second and third cohort, mm -hmm. what we did was I challenged and encouraged mm -hmm. the kids to tell a story that is, will end up being a contribution to society. So what, what I meant by that is I want you to tell a story that if someone in your neighborhood or someone outside of this room sees that story, the story you're telling, they're going to learn something. And then I showed them a couple of public service announcements because what it ended up being was they, they ended up creating public service announcements. It was, it was kind of eerie. It was kind of weird. As, they're, as it's unfolding, it was like, oh, wow, this is cool. They're doing pub PSAs. Mm -hmm. And so the second and third group, yeah, I actually had the kids do PSAs. That was enlightening because, it, as you know, to do any kind of multimedia 
project, you have to do a lot of research. It takes a lot of work. So that once the kids figured out their topic that they wanted to engage in, they had to research it and they had to collect data and they had to compile the data. They had to write about it. And so it, it became, in a way, a more enriching experience. The thing about the PSAs makes me think about um, something I heard from this guy, David Denborough, who's a narrative therapist, who talks about helping people. Uh, how, how, do we, how can we enable contribution? So instead of just mm. us as the therapist or helpers helping people with their individual lives, but how do we also um, enable them to contribute to the social issues that are, they're a part of and that they know affect people around them? Yes. And how the, <clears throat> I love it. Yeah, I and how that it. could how that can be really helpful to people, even if it's not directly about them working on their internal individual issues. And that's something when I've experimented that with that too, around enabling people to make a meaningful contribution to the social issues around them. It, it helps. Absolutely. But it's not really part of the, the kind of therapy narratives that it's easy to get funding for exactly. You know, <laughs> you're trying to get funding to reduce an individual person's symptoms. Do you ever run into that, like around finding, around this approach, like having it fit into the dominant ways that therapy is looked at or funded? Yeah, I think um, therapy and funding of therapy, especially in the world that I come from, which is child welfare, is a very kind of tight, controlled knot or box. It's tough to maneuver and operate outside that box. But it's possible. You can. It can be done. It's. It's all in how one writes up. You know how you kind of describe and write up what you're doing. So, in other words, if if you have a therapeutic technique that you want to use, you just have to know how to write it. <laughs> so I come from the world. We're funded through the Department of Mental Health, and we bill by the minute. My therapist bill by the minute and when an auditor comes and looks at a progress note they want to be able to connect a few different things they want to see mm -hmm. okay well what is the goal of the client right i want to know what their problem area is and you know you can kind of see that through their diagnosis but almost more than that i want to know what kind of objective and goal was set up and then if an objective and goal is set up how does that connect to uh, the intervention strategy that you're using, and then how does that connect to uh, the response of the client to that intervention, and then what kind of planning are you using as you move forward? So we call it GIRP, G-I-R-P, it's an acronym, stands for Goal, Intervention, Response, and Plan. If they could see that connection in those four areas, they're happy. So if I'm a cognitive, uh, you know, I use trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or I use um, some form of a family system therapy or I'm an expressive arts therapy or a narrative therapy, all that sounds the same to them. Mm -hmm. They don't care about that. What they care about is connecting the goal to the intervention to the response and seeing through data if this kid is getting better or worse. From that point of view, yeah, if I'm using digital media or if I'm using play therapy, mm -hmm. you can use mm -hmm. those techniques. You just have to know how to write it in the language that 
DMH understands. That's where people get tripped up because a lot of therapists will mm -hmm. say, oh, well, I can't use digital media or I can't use play or I can't use art. You know, I have to use one of these prescribed models that they're giving me. And what I say is, no, you could incorporate all of that in those prescribed models. You just have to know how to write it. Mm -hmm. So and then your funding, your funding is there. On the other hand, and I'm going to go outside of the therapeutic context, and but I still think it's therapeutic. So three weeks ago, I went to a conference called Digital Media Learning, and I might be able to send you a link, DML mm -hmm. 2015. And I found out about it in May. Signed, I went to my boss, CEO. I said, hey, there's this uh, Digital Media Learning conference occurring bounces around the US. It happens every year. This year, it just happens to be in LA. It's next month. Do you mind if I go on Aviva's dime? And she's like, yeah, go for it. So I went, it was over three days, Thursday through Saturday. And Will, I was like blown away. There were probably <laughs> about four or 500 activists that's the best word I could use. I mean, these are real, true community activists, but they were all nerds. I've never seen, <laughs> I've never seen nerdy activists. I was like, oh, I'm in heaven. This is really cool. So I, I hear you. I, and they were, they were, and what I learned is like California and LA is actually like lagging, like we're really behind. Um, the the really progressive uh, cities are Chicago in Boston, like especially Chicago. Interesting. Yeah, so they are like, they're using digital media with youth. It's like they're on steroids. I mean, they're, <laughs> they are changing the whole trajectory of poverty within their areas through, uh, through digital media. And they have data to, to show how it's working. They're setting up digital wow. media labs in public libraries. You have a lot of small nonprofits that are popping up that are using, that are engaging kids in digital media. They're connected with the MacArthur Foundation and also with Mozilla. I know Mozilla has a big site in San Francisco and they even have it to the point <clears throat> where they give out something called digital badges to youth. And this is all grant funded ventures, right? So uh, basically, uh, you know, you set up shop, you draw in grant money, <clears throat> you get uh, computers and digital technology, and then you invite kids who come from impoverished backgrounds to come in and learn and engage. And a lot of it is art-based, but it's also predicated on skill building. And then as kids unfold and learn new skills, they can acquire uh, what's called digital badges. The cool thing about digital badges is it, it's a way to have a kind of digital online portfolio that stays with you. And then those these kids could actually get connected at Pandora or Facebook or, oh. or Microsoft and get a job. Whereas five, six, 10 years ago, the only way you were gonna get that job was to have a university education and some kind of you know technological field where now these companies uh, respect and honor these digital badges and they're starting to hire inner city kids. So it's opening up a whole new realm of possibility. The keynote speaker was uh, Van Jones. I don't know if you're familiar with Van Jones. 
He's on no. he's on CNN a lot. He's he's a uh, former. I don't know if he still practices law, but he's kind of a community activist, African American dude, real sharp. <clears throat> and his opening line was, uh, you know, I I'm just trying to remember. He goes, I meet tons of kids who uh, who say uh, I have it in my notebook, but I don't want to refer to it. He goes, I meet tons of uh, kids who want to be rappers right and they're really working on their rap game and they come up to me all the time and they're talking about how they want to be a rapper and i look at them and say uh show me don't show me your rap show me your app <laughs> right so <laughs> so in other words you you're spending a lot of time writing rhymes which is cool but if you're trying to do that as a career and and this is where it gets back to almost that kid that wanted to be the basketball player, right? Mm -hmm. If you're, mm -hmm. if you want to do a career as a rapper, let's look at the numbers and let's look at how, how, re, how reality, how real that is. But on the other hand, if you want to create an app, right? And if you want to learn how to program and how to code, let's look at those numbers. Cause then the next thing Van Jones talked about was, uh, in the next 10 years, there will be, over a million tech jobs and not enough kids, not enough people, not kids, but not enough young adults to fill those jobs. And so that's where the, the real opportunity is. And so for me, Will, like the kind of trajectory, it's not 100% solely like in the world of therapy per se. It's really in the world of skill building, of uh, uh, equipping, inner city kids, kids from that come from impoverished conditions with opportunities, access, new skill sets to uh, equalize, right, the playing field. And the sub-theme of the DML conference was equity by choice. And they, mm -hmm. they played a lot on this whole idea of equity. And how do you make kids who are behind the eight ball more equal? Well, you got to teach them a skill set. And what better area than digital media learning digital media technology so that's kind of where even expressive remix is kind of evolving into this more broad thing on, on the therapeutic side yeah it's about individual stories and remixing your stories but to me the bigger vision is learning a skill uh, becoming learning a competency possibly a passion setting yourself up to unfold in a bigger way in society mm -hmm. Wow, that's a beautiful vision. That's something I feel like I can get behind too. Um, and just think about the difference in how, we're, if we're just looking at it in terms of mental health, like how much it changes someone if they feel they are skilled and they are equipped to be in the world and have a meaningful career where they're getting to be creative. Um, that's, that's how you change poverty. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first, the first step of, po of changing poverty in, in many ways, well, I won't say the first step, but a critical key step in changing poverty is uh, employment. Like you, you have to yeah. have meaningful employment. You have to have people who have jobs and who can work and who have a, a healthy esteem about about what they're doing. They're not on the streets hustling. You know, they're not selling weed. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. not doing uh, illegal things to, to make money. Now, all of a sudden, they've kind of set themselves up 
to have a real job. And it's not at McDonald's, right? Because we hear this a lot too, you know, oh, well, there are jobs at McDonald's or there are jobs at a, a restaurant or, you know, so yeah. Yeah. So thinking about this digital badge that you mentioned in Chicago that I never heard of before, but do you envision that, that like when you, when you help these youth make PSAs, that it was something that they could take with them and have as like a digital yes. um, yeah. portfolio yes. and something they could, they could circulate to others? Yes. So yeah. before I went to this conference, the, those thoughts were fuzzy. I, I had created a logic model. I already knew, yeah, I want Expressive Remix to be about learning skills where kids can learn skills and parlay those skills into something better, right? Something bigger. But I didn't know how that would be done. After I went to this conference, I'm like, oh my God, here it is. Like, it's already here. It's all, you know, it's not really being done in LA yet. Um, they have these things called hives, like a beehive. And a hive is a conglomerate of different, not small little nonprofits or organizations that are around a city that are using digital media, but they work collaboratively, they work together. And they're all over Chicago. There's like a bunch of hives. And I and I met people, I'm like, can I get your card? And I actually met a few people from LA who wanna connect with me because we're looking at each other like, okay, well, we're in this city, we have a similar vision and dream. How can we parlay our, our resources and, and start to work together? And I just, I'm starting to get emails from some of these people. So to answer your question, yeah, the, yeah, we would, I would love for kids to have, you know, we're about to build our digital media lab, the ideas to learn digital skills, to get digital badges, to create a portfolio, and to have that as uh, equity, as an opportunity, mm -hmm. equity, access to a bigger world and a better, brighter future. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So if, if any listeners want to you know, contact you and connect with you or get you in touch with somebody else they know that's kind of in, involved in this work, what's the best way to contact you? Or? Yeah, sure. They could, um, I'll give you, well, I don't know if I give you my email. It's a SIDHA, S-I-D-D-H-A, 930 at yahoo.com. Uh, they could personally email me. They could call me. 626-786-9284. That's my sale number. And I'm uh, very much open to networking uh, when, it, cool. when it comes to, uh, you know, creating a brighter future for our, our youth. Um, David Denborough, I'm definitely going to look him up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think he'd be really excited about what you're doing. And he's, he's a songwriter himself. Okay. He does work like collaborative songwriting in Australia Sweet. and other places. So he's a creative guy. Um, one other question, you know, you mentioned Cool Herc, but I'm, I'm curious if there's any other um, songs or, or lyrics that you feel like uh, kind of represent some aspect of this work or your vision come to mind? Let me think on that. I don't, okay. nothing just pops up. Um, yeah. I did recently, I had to look for it. I did recently see uh, a quote by Tupac. I actually saw it at that conference and I was like, oh, that's an interesting quote. And I wrote it down, but I don't know it by heart. But let me, let me think on that. That's a good question. Okay. And then I'll, I'll email you. 
Yeah. Um, well, I feel really inspired um, by this, and it's something that I've I've been thinking about. I have these like pieces around yeah. multimedia and the tech industry in the Bay Area, and these youth who are like they're so engaged sometimes in lyrics and writing yes. their own beats yes. and in the technology. I'm like, how can we weave this together into something? And and I've just been trying little experiments. Sometimes it's just asking youth, like, what are they listening to? Or if there's a certain song that kind of keeping their spirits up, you know, and um, having conversations about that. But um, this really is going to give me a lot of fuel to kind of uh, creatively imagine some things here. Um, is there any other aspects of this, of what you're doing that you'd like to talk about or like to share with others? Um, you know, I think just stay tuned. I think we're all in a very cool, unique point in time. And um, I think in, in California, especially, we're going to we're going to see some cool things unfold. So L.A., the Bay, um, you know, obviously, I'm not the first to do this. Uh, and even DJ Cool Herc wasn't the first, you know, I mean, there were dis disco DJs before Ku Herc who were using two turntables, but it was just Ku Herc was a was an innovator, you know, he just he just took it to another level and I just you know, that's what I'm hoping that we could do. That we just take what's already there, remix it and do some cool stuff for uh for the uh for the youth. Yeah. So um one other organization I'd like to tell you about. Have you heard of Hack the Hood? No. So that's a Bay Area group, and I believe they're relatively new. But we've had some of the youth from our shelter um, go there and say good things about it. They do like a, a, a boot camp program where they teach youth about web design and entrepreneurship, and they help um, work on websites for local businesses and get them connected with people outside of that. That, that um, sounds, the, yeah. That's great. They give them a stipend and a Chromebook at the end of the training, and uh, I've heard good things from the youth about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they were at that conference a few weeks ago. Yeah, probably. Because a lot of the organizations sound just like Hack the Hood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. This has been really uh, inspiring, and I'm, I'm excited to share this with other folks, including some of the people we've mentioned in the podcast, too. I think they would really enjoy this. Sounds like a good plan. All right, Will, thank you. Enjoy your weekend, sir. You too. All right, bye-bye. Thanks again to Jeffrey Jamerson for sharing his work with us. To see some examples of his animated mask uh, technique, you can search YouTube for Expressive Remix Workshop and animated mask. You'll find some. For more information about Beats, Rhymes, and Life, you can check out their website, brl-inc.org. The bird call at the beginning was an American goldfinch. And I got the idea of using animal sounds from Derek Jensen's podcast, Resistance Radio. We had DJ Lang 59 with Garden of the Forking at the beginning. And in the background right now is PITX with Calparina. 
Thanks for listening.